to the Salento Files after a big Italian-style siesta. This is episode 8, Fiddling While Rome Burns. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our stories so far and our adventures over summer. It'll take about 15 minutes. Well, what a summer we've had. Mario Ballatelli was the hero of Italy's Euro Cup tilt. And then he wasn't. Leaders of European nations spent the whole summer bunkered down with the central bank, working out how to save Italy's beleaguered citizenry from financial ruin. In this time of great uncertainty and fear, and when we all need to work together like never before, we Italians went on holidays. Let them waste their lives on petty currency issues, we said, and let us slurp our lemon granita. I'll pick up where we left off back in June. We left the Salento after some big turning points in our stay. We had some guests come and stay with us and it was always insightful to get their take on this place. Poorer than they had expected, but also very beautiful and lots of fun. Another recurring theme was their amazement that we actually know people here. It came to a climax when one set of mates saw me deep in conversation at my daily coffee hangout with Simona and Gigi, the couple who owned the bar, discussing in depth the state of Simona's mum's kidneys and whether she was going to get kicked out of hospital early. Since when do you care about this woman's kidneys, they said. That was the objection levelled at me. In my defence, Simona's mum's kidneys have been a problem for a long time and that doctor she's been seeing hasn't helped, you know. That's the same Gigi and Simona who cried firstly when we said goodbye before going on our trip and then again when we returned and then again when we pointed out that we were leaving in three months. Now, rightly or wrongly, I do most of my crying in private. But if you know someone like me, you know that you should never confuse lack of tears with lack of feelings. I love that some people can let it all go right there on a Tuesday morning with eight disgruntled tourists waiting for their espresso. As she tearfully hugged me goodbye and noticed my dry eyes, Simona said, Don't you even feel sad? Imagine if I told her I didn't even cry at my mum's funeral. Back in June, I performed at our end-of-year gospel choir concert in full tunic. See the Salento Files Facebook page for photos. My cousin who was visiting from Australia described it as uplifting. I would have settled for in tune. But in any case, it was good fun, even if all the other choir ladies valiantly continued their quest to ignore me completely throughout. finished school in June amidst a whirlwind of end-of-year concerts and festivities. More on the school thing in the next episode, but it's good to note now that friendships have been formed and playdates have been had. Charlie, being that bit older, attended one of these without us into this little boy's home where no one speaks English for a whole Sunday afternoon. He was confident enough to do it, so we let him at it, and it was a success. 
That's really cool, don't you think? Just as our Tranto started heaving with tourists, we took off. We followed our sat-nav's red line for 65 days, driving about 5,000 kilometres and stopping in 10 different destinations. This road trip probably seems like a peculiar experiment in the limits of familial proximity, not to mention a test to see how many times you can listen to Stephen Fry and Judy Dench perform Winnie the Pooh audiobooks. But it was also exhilarating, mostly at times when exhilaration was least expected. And perhaps the best bits were when we caught up with some people we loved, all Australians, all on holiday in France and Italy. Happenings throughout those days were telling in just how much this year has affected us. For example, somehow, our friend Kev, who was visiting from Sydney, was caught in a little village chapel with our rambunctious children who cannot be kept still and quiet in these circumstances. Kev was educated by the Jesuits. Kev understands that when the proctor emerges from the back of the church, you had better behave as if you're close to God. Seeing the proctor walking towards them, he hissed to the children, Quick, sit down and say a prayer. As if driven by divine intervention itself, the kids immediately dropped down on the kneelers of the pew and commenced their full and correct Italian recitation of Padre Nostro, our father. Kev was kind of amazed and couldn't wait to tell me. But as the mother of these children, I was horrified. The kids were not only blindly obedient, but conspicuously pious. Just so you know, they didn't learn that from me. We kept Mediterranean hours during our trip. All of us, including the children, went to bed after midnight most nights. Yes, I know, shocking, isn't it? But I get it now. It's the sunset, stupid. It happens at 10pm across the Mediterranean in high summer. Too much going on at that time to go to bed. You'll be pleased to know that normal programming has now returned and I still can't work out how the locals manage to justify these late nights in winter when the sun sets at 5pm. Maybe they all sit at the kitchen table in front of a spreadsheet, devising submissions to Monty for solving the unemployment crisis. I was fascinated in France at the local attitudes to men's swimwear. In Australia, we have mandatory detention of boat people. In France, they have mandatory wearing of men's slip de bain or bathing suits. You know, the Tony Abbott kind. As we wring our hands in Australia over the lack of substantive debate on mandatory detention of boat people, so should they be asking themselves in France, where is the outcry over mandatory budgie smugglers? My husband found himself on the wrong side of this law in a public pool, just as the children had jumped into the pool and started splashing about. They all but accused him of perversion on account of his billabong boardies. The clear message he took from this is that in France, a man can only be trusted in a pool with small children if he is wearing lycra underwear and only lycra underwear. The shape of his genitals, as well as the unfettered curve of his bottom, must be clearly displayed at all times. This is how we keep our kids safe in France. Now, this swimming pool debacle occurred about 100 metres away from the village's main street, where every day they ran 400 kilogram black bulls down the streets as part of the summer festival. It's called an abrivado. The objective is to agitate the bulls sufficiently for them to give chase and then see how much pandemonium can be caused from that. To that end, local kids raced after the bulls, who were really relatively tranquil, all things considered, pulling their tails, smacking them with sticks and generally tormenting them. In the end, though, the bulls reacted, of course. After each abrivado, local children hobbled home covered in their own blood, clothing in tatters, 
and slapping each other's backs with excitement, satisfied that they've really got the better of the bull in that last run. But yes, let's make sure a man's shorts don't come down to his thighs if he's in a swimming pool. That will protect our children. By now, and thanks to their full immersion at school in the local lingo, our kids are fluent in Italian, in the context of school and play at least. That's good, obviously. But the bigger point is how the process of this year has changed their confidence with other children and what it meant for their experience on this holiday over summer. Now, in general, our kids are, and this may come as a shock to you, so I hope you are sitting down, very chatty. In Australia, they will always approach anyone in a park and just start playing. But for the first few months here, that was all too hard on account of the language barrier. But now that they've gone through all that, they've understood what it means to feel marginalised and they've got through to the other side of it. And now they have the confidence to approach any kid anywhere. We were surrounded at all times by kids from all over Europe. And not once did our children let lack of common language get in the way of good times and sandcastles. I do think it may have been confusing at times, though. One day, Charlie was playing with some kid he had just met. I think we were up near the Swiss border. And he called out to me, Mama, this boy is Spanish. Then Charlie turned to the boy in question and cheerfully exclaimed, Moshi moshi. Now I have a point which has been running through my mind throughout this road trip. Please note that this is a facile idea which will not win me a book a prize for its insight into the human condition. Continue listening if you are as shallow as me. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been warned. I have an emerging theory about the way women present themselves and how it relates to their provenance. Melbourne women, androgynous lace-up brogues, black layering and shortcut fringes. They seem to be sending a message that they have their minds on serious things, capital S, capital T, like Walid Ali's next lecture at the Wheeler Centre. They will not trivialise themselves by drawing too much attention to their beauty. Sydney women, with their golden locks trailing down their bare backs and their bejeweled sandals flopping at the end of their tanned legs, seem to be sending a message that looking glamorous is the serious thing, capital S, capital T, and that in a town which has all that shiny sunshine and water, this is not a choice but a civic responsibility. And now here, I think that theory holds. In the Salento, there seem to be a lot of personal aesthetic decisions made on the strength of what you might have worn when you were 25, despite what your age may now be. Salentine women seem to be saying, you've known me since I was born, you know how good I used to look, give me a break here, and if you don't, I'll break you. You are on notice. As you head north through Italy, the look becomes more delicate, but the hair, tanning and Botox get serious as the incomes get fatter. And wherever you go in Italy, there are the boobs, always on display and often a surgical addition. Presumably put there to underscore the most important thing you need to do in Italy to further your cause, get a man's attention. Whether your cause be convincing the European Central Bank to buy your bonds or to get yourself married, you as a woman will never be the decision maker. And as I say this, I make it clear that this is not a criticism. In a country where you can still legitimately lose your job for getting pregnant, a woman needs to work whatever limited angle she has. Then there are the Swiss women, all rangy and broad-shouldery, athletic and Birkenstocked, presumably the essentials for all that hiking and lake swimming. The hair is pulled back and out of the way, the most efficient way to wear it. They're expensive, these girls, but in a natural muesli kind of way. Just look at the sports watch. It matters because in Switzerland, 
time is everything. Then you get to France and you feel like you have been dropped among the planet's very model of a modern perfect woman. The hair has had some time put into it, but it still moves naturally in the breeze. Even out in the country, the fingers and toes on the women at the grocery store are perfectly done, always in natural, toned-down hues. The clothes are delicate and smart, capable and confident. You stare, and as you do, it dawns on you that this is the country that gave the world Christine Lagarde. Anyway, speaking of glamour, our summer festival ended with a stunning and really fun wedding on the Amalfi Coast. Our Australian friend married an Italian guy, and they are now living happily ever after. With so many old friends who had come from Australia for the wedding, we had a ball. And then we came back to the Salento, and it felt strange. As we wove our way down the calf of Italy's boot to return here after two months' absence, I got the sickly feeling of being isolated and alone. After all that time with friends and in touristy places where you are completely surrounded by English speakers, it felt empty and lonely coming back here. We had forgotten how easy life can be when you speak easily to other people. We had forgotten how fun it is to socialise with people who have known you since the ANU bar slug in 1995. The closer we got to home, the more I had that, oh my God, I'm a long way from modern civilization feeling, which leads to the inevitable questions. What the hell are we doing? Should we just be packing up and heading back to Australia? We've done nine months. Do we really need to stay out the next three? This is too hard and I live in a linguistic tunnel and I have no point of reference. Can I really put up with this for another three months? The feeling lasted about two days. Once we headed out onto the streets in Otranto, had our coffees with Gigi and Simona, shared a meal with other friends and were generally greeted on the street with bellissimi bentornati. Beautiful people, you're back. On the street, I felt okay about it all again. Not just okay, pretty excited. And then that usual conflict between, on one hand, wanting everyone I know to see this place, and on the other, jealously wanting this seclusion to last forever. We returned just in time to catch the end of the heaving Salentine summer holiday season, which sees Otranto perform a metamorphosis from a population of 5,000 heavy-lidded Salentini to about 30,000 moneyed northern Italians, German Swedes, and yes, even some Inglese, arrived for hedonistic beachside excitements. All of the shops open from about 8am till 5am every day. Yep, 21 hours of trading, seven days a week for two months. This is when the locals make their money. Endless festivals and fireworks. Good times. Assisting me on my path of general gladness at being here is the fact that we have moved house and are now right in Otranto Centro Storico, or Historical Centre. Two minutes walk to school, two minutes walk to the beach. It's a long, boring story as to why we moved, you know, running water, stuff like that. Enough to say, I think, that a friend who visited us in our previous house in Ujano described it as, and I quote, training camp for Opus Day. The historical centre is fully pedestrianised, which means the kids have been walking around by themselves and running errands for us. Our apartment is on the top floor of a building that is over 400 years old and it's completely refurbished. Look at the Salento Fowler's Facebook page to see the view we have and you will understand that we may never again live in a place where you wake up to that every morning. Proximity to the beach has led to early morning swims, which has led to watching the local guys fish, which has led to a mini fishing craze in our own family. The last week of the holidays has seen us at the beach at 6.30 in the morning, child-sized rod in hand, mashing up bread, seawater and grana padano for bait. It is baffling that I love it. 
and our new landlord, Francesco, has already taken us out for spoons and ice creams on his antique wooden boat. As he rowed us through the harbour, we noted yet another old ruined boat which was sitting in dry dock. More clandestini had arrived from Africa last week. They're currently detained and will probably be sent back subito, quickly. And to look at the boat they had made that voyage in, well, all I can say is our kids are seeing real human desperation right on their doorstep and I hope it's having an impact on them. This week, the kids returned to school after a three and a half month holiday period and even now, for the first few weeks of school, they only go for half days, they come home for lunch. If you question why, after all this time off, they are spending the first two weeks going only in the mornings. You'll be told it's because it's too hot in September to be at school all day. For your information, the current daily high temperature is 28 degrees. Welcome back to the Salento people, and let us get back to our lemon granita. See you in two weeks. Yeah.